Um, uh, the ladies, Kathy, others who got the little treats for everyone today, and uh, the pop bottles, for, uh, we thank you for all you do, and so it was a Mountain Dew, and a uh, little pun there going on, and and uh, I had to enjoy my mustache quickly because it was melting as soon as I got out of the church there, but it was very tasty, and I uh, enjoyed that very much. Thank you uh, for doing that nice thing for us today. Would you take your Bible and go with me uh, to First Timothy? Chapter 4 and verse. First Timothy 4 and verse 7. First Timothy 4 7, but refuse profane and old wives' fables and exercise thyself rather. Unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd open up this text to our minds and our hearts. May we respond in the way that pleases you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I remember going to camp uh, every summer. Um, from the time I was about 10 years old uh, through our church down in Virginia. Uh, it used to be called Baptist Youth Camp, then became Rapidan Baptist Camp, and it's a place that's dear to my heart. And um, many spiritual decisions made in Bible camps all over this country and other lands too, I'm sure. And uh, how many of you had experiences going to Bible camp growing up and uh, feel like a lot of your spiritual life has been benefited and equipped by that? I think a lot of people could say that they have been blessed and benefited by going to camp. And I remember um, on a, many occasions, you know, you'd have a great wicked camp, great Bible teaching, and you'd have, we'd have Bible classes in the day, and then we'd have Bible services at night. And, we, and uh, it, was, it was a great time, great games competition, getting to know new people in your cabins, getting to know your counselor. It was a really good experience. And by Friday night, you'd have a campfire service, and you'd give a report or update on how God had worked in your life. And there was always great testimonies and some salvations and some rededications, those kinds of things. And uh, you'd just come home that next Saturday morning just on fire for the Lord. And, and I think that was rightly so and, and, and intended. And, um, but it's, it became very clear to me that it, was, it seemed easier to live for the Lord when you're at camp in that uh, more of a controlled atmosphere and environment. And it seemed like once you got back home, it was a little more challenging going back to school, back to the routine. And sometimes that fire that seemed to be so intense on Friday night seemed to maybe be diminished a little bit. And, uh, but you came home fired up. I was, you know, overcoming temptation, maybe giving up a bad habit, uh, just starting to live right, beginning to have your devotions more regularly, praying more faithfully, sharing your faith with others, better relationship with mom and dad. And uh, by the middle of the next week, it just seemed like some of that had kind of flickered out a little bit. Not completely, but the zeal seemed to be gone. And uh, just kind of kept saying, you know, from now on, I'm going to be better. From now on, I'm going to be a godly person. I'm going to do what's right. And it just seemed like it was very difficult to happen. And um, part of the problem may be that I was expecting that camp atmosphere to continue in my life. Or we can apply that to, you know, going to Bible college. Expect that atmosphere of a Christian college to be there when I begin going to a secular job in the summertime. And, and, and it's not the same. 
and we don't always have that unified support to do what's right with everyone around you. We often find ourselves surrounded by people who have no intention of obeying God or doing what he wants, and, and it just makes life very challenging, and it makes the, the striving for godliness to be a challenge as well. And yet, we all, perhaps growing up, we knew people, we were aware of people in our church, in our community, believers, that just seemed to be so godly that it was almost an honor to speak with them. And uh, one lady in our church that I grew up in, I remember as Ruth Pettit, was just a godly, dear, uh, single lady. Uh, lived all of her life in this one house near the church. Prayed for our missionaries. I think I've shared a little bit about with her in the past. Just a, a go- dear, godly woman. And, uh, you know, I think about her often as a life well lived for the Lord. But in the eyes of the world, people might look down on the life she lived as uh, maybe not successful, maybe not wealthy in the ways of the world, maybe, um, you know, not educated. You know, the things that people measure success by. And yet I am convinced in my heart that uh, she received a grand welcome when she went to be with the Lord many years ago. But I think what I'm explaining here is something that we've all perhaps experienced at some point or another, maybe even after week of revival meetings or, or some spiritual uh, event that really touched your heart and moved you emotionally and, and gave you great enthusiasm. And when you hit the real world again, it became challenging for us. And that failure is something that I want to talk about. I think the desire is right and it should be there, but there is something stronger than our desire to be godly. And that sometimes wins, and that is our flesh. The flesh sometimes can be stronger than our desire to be godly. Do you agree with that? Does that seem like the truth to you in your own experience? Uh, the flesh, the Bible sometimes calls it the old man. We've heard that a sin nature is an extraordinarily powerful thing. And it desires, in fact, demands to be satisfied. And it takes a lot of effort and willpower to say no to that flesh of ours. The flesh is a powerful thing. But you know what's one other factor that I might throw in as a possible problem to uh, achieving uh, a lasting godliness in our lives is this idea perhaps of an instant godliness. You ever met someone who just got saved and the very next day people all said, what a godly person that is. I mean, (laughs) probably not. Probably not because it takes what? It takes time, growth, maturity to have godliness. So godliness, even as we think of that word, we understand it's not something you get overnight. You can't just be zapped into godliness. It's something that seems to be a part of our Christian journey in the Lord. And I think that's a biblical thought as we'll look at some of these passages. So we get to this passage here. How, do, how does godliness come? Timothy's a pastor. Uh, a disciple, a son in the faith of the Apostle Paul, pastor at Ephesus, a big port city. Um, Lots of great advice for Timothy and for all pastors and much of this for believers as well, uh, whether they're in a pastoral ministry or not. Uh, And so in verse 7, we have this matter of priorities. Paul tells somebody, refuse certain things. You've got to say no to some things and yes to others. You can't do it all. You can't be part of all of this. So he says, refuse profane and old wives' fables, which may have been a lot of history of what he may have been intending to talk about there. Something that maybe the Jewish members of his church may have been really big on their genealogies. He mentions that kind of thing elsewhere. Maybe big on traditions. Um, Maybe stories that really did didn't lead to godly behavior, uh, but were a part of their culture. 
maybe it even involved a lot of the, the local gossip. And uh, it might have been t- such a problem that Paul was aware of that he had to say to Timothy, look, you refuse that. Don't be a part of that. Don't waste your time on that. Let me tell you something better to invest your time in. And he says, exercise thyself rather, that is instead of these wasteful things, instead of exercise yourself to godliness. And the key, I think, to what we're talking about is found in verse 7, exercise. Exercise. The secret, there's no magic formula to godliness, we all know that. But there may be a secret that not everyone's aware of, and it seems to be connected to this verse and the thought of exercise or training. Some translations have train yourself rather Unto godliness. Now, discipline is connected with that. Discipline always has a negative connotation of pain, uh, consequences. You did something bad, so you're going to be disciplined. But the word also has a good connotation because we use it in the word disciple, a learner. Uh, the Greek word mathetes meant someone who was a pupil, a learner, a student of a master. And so we have the 12 disciples, those who were disciplined. Uh, we don't imagine Jesus putting him, them over his knee and spanking them on occasion, although he probably needed it quite a few times. But the idea of teaching them, guiding them, leading them, and them learning their lessons through teaching, rebukes, examples, the miracles that they saw in the life of Jesus. There really is no other way to achieve discipline except, uh, to see godliness except on the path of discipline. So if you've been praying for God to make you godly by tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., it's probably not going to happen because it takes time. It takes time. Now, there's another secret to this idea, and that is also found in verse 7. The first secret it was it involves discipline or exercise, and the second word is right after that, and that's yourself or thyself. The second secret is you. You. You know, Pastor Brian can't make you godly, can he? He wants you to be godly. And he himself wants to be godly. He's shared lots of his weaknesses with us just in the past uh, year or so and some of his own personal struggles. But we all want to be godly. But if you don't, if you come to the point in your life where you really don't want that in your life, can anyone else make you? Really can't. Any more than we can force you to receive Christ as Savior. I mean, someone can force you to say the words. Someone can bribe you. Someone can uh, guilt you till you say what they want you to say. But no one can really force faith, right? It has to come from the Spirit. It has to come from within. And I think this desire for a godliness is the same way. The word godly uh, means... Uh, <clears throat> It's, it's the idea of a godlike attitude about God that results in a behavior that resembles God. Uh, the idea of godliness is believing the right things about God, but not just stopping there. Because some people might believe the right things about God, but their life is not, not so good. Not such an honorable thing. So it's an honorable attitude about God that results in honorable behavior. It affects my daily life. It affects everything that I do. So a new believer may start believing the right things about God, but it's going to take some time for him to change some of those sinful habits. And part of that lifestyle that doesn't please God may take some time for those old things to go away. And so no one else can discipline you to be godly. Dare I say that uh, even Jesus himself didn't force his followers 
to serve him. He pleaded with them. He rebuked them when he saw a lack of faith. But he couldn't compel them. They had to see. He said, do you not see the miracles that I do? Have you not heard what I've taught you? Have I not been so long with you and yet you ask, you know, uh, these questions? Why do you not yet believe? He was expecting them to simply observe and then desire that. That the faith would come by listening and learning and observing from him, but sometimes it didn't come. But they had to want it. He didn't say, all right, all of you line up. I'm going to put it in your night I'm going to get your injection of godliness. He didn't do that. So no one else can discipline you to be godly. That's why this is a command to no one else but you. You have to discipline yourself to be godly. I mean, people can make some requirements for you. You've got to do this and this and this and you'll be godly. But we can, we can fake that. We can pretend that we're doing this. We can act like it's, you know, play a game. But in the end, we're not going to become godly. We have to want it. And it's no one else's responsibility but your own based upon verse 7. You can't blame anyone else for not being godly. I should have been godly by now. It must be my pastor's fault. It must be my parents' fault. It must be my spouse's fault. No, I can blame no one else for my lack of godliness except myself. So, uh, godliness is not optional. Compare this with 1 Peter 1.16 and the related quality character of holiness. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. Peter writes, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Holiness and godliness are very close. Uh, Holiness focusing on the behavioral aspect of our godliness. Godliness involving both the attitude and belief system that results in the holy behavior, holy lifestyle. It's not an option. God wants us, God's commanded us to be like Him in those areas where we can emulate God. Now, that doesn't mean we can become uh, omniscient, omnipresent, and, uh, and all those things. Some of those qualities belong only to God. But holiness and love and grace and mercy and faithfulness and, and such are all elements that God wants us to have in our lives. So, back to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7. Notice the next little word, and it's the word unto. Unto. <clears throat> that little word has the idea of a goal or towards something. Exercise yourself rather towards or for the purpose of achieving eusebia or godliness. Godliness. And this has to do really with our whole life. Not just Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night, or Wednesday night, but the entire week, the entire month, the entire year, our entire life. That everything I do, everything that I touch and that touches me, should call forth from my heart a desire to be godly. Whether it's writing a paper, working on a work project, carrying out my job, relating to people around me, godliness should, uh, should take place in those conversations, in those projects. It should find a home there. As Timothy is told to exercise, I don't get the idea that this is something that he could just do one time. Spend one day exercising. and The idea of toward implies the process. Salvation is in a moment. But this idea of godliness goes along with that idea of sanctification. It's a process that begins and goes through the entire, our whole life. Can anybody say, I have arrived, I'm completely godly today? Some might say that. Um, those who believe and hold to a doctrine known as Christian perfectionism. But I seriously question that. Uh, whether that's even possible in this lifetime. 
This is meant to be something that we hunger. Christ is telling us, it's, it's like the words where Christ gave his disciples, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Let this desire, this unquenchable desire for godliness be a dominating part of your life from here on through the rest of your life. Timothy, you need it as a pastor. And the rest of us need it too. I mean, if, if Timothy needed to have these words, how much more do we need this? If he needs to tell a pastor to hunger for godliness and train himself, how much more then do we? But why then is it so hard? Again, that flesh. The spirit is willing, Jesus said on one occasion, but the flesh is weak. We lack self-discipline. Take a look back at that word exercise. The word is gumnazo. Uh, we get our English word gymnasium from that. Uh, those that are uh, biology people, uh, uh, gymnosperms are evergreen trees. They're literally naked seeds. Uh, they have seeds that don't have flesh like an apple. They're just bare seeds, gymnosperms. Gymno means naked. Gumnazo in this word means naked, without any covering. And the word exercise came from that because the ancient Greeks would exercise or practice sports in those days without any clothing on. Now remember, their clothing was long flowing robes. Hard to run these races or throw their discus or their javelin with these long flowing robes. And from what I understand, they would often disrobe in the gym while they practiced these sports. So those long flowing robes wouldn't hold them back. And so the name gymnasium came as a result of that practice. Thankfully, we don't do that anymore today. But that was the history of the word. That's the etymology of it. So to train yourself, uh, the idea was to unfetter yourself from all that would bind you and hold you back. To, to shake loose anything that's keeping you from achieving what you're trying to accomplish. And so, you know, even in our culture, people would wear the appropriate clothing for what they're going to do. You wouldn't wear parachute pants to run a marathon necessarily, right? Or a heavy coat. Uh, you wouldn't wear heavy clothing or waders if you're going to try to go on a swimming race. You know, things are going to weigh you down or pull you down. You wear what is going to help you achieve your event uh, best. And so that's this word here. Exercise yourself. In, term, in, uh, in Hebrews, we're told um, to put off those things which weigh us down. And the sin which so easily besets us. Uh, we're told they're seeing that this great cloud of witnesses is all around us. Get rid of those things that hold us back. And run that race that is set before us. Run unhindered by our sinful nature. By our, maybe things that aren't sinful but are in the way. That are an obstacle that are holding us down, that may not even in and of themselves be sinful, but they're holding us back. Get rid of those things. So the word train there, I the idea of removing all hindrances. What kinds of hindrances do we have to keep us from achieving godliness? I think it may be a lot of things. Anything that consumes our time that we can't spend it with the Lord. Anything that consumes our thoughts so that we're not thinking about the need to share the gospel or our Christian testimony and how others may perceive us. That which so dominates our life that we can't make time for God, even in our thoughts or giving time to Him on His day or making time for Him uh, in my regular life to pray, to read, to meditate, to memorize, or to share my faith. So this idea of exercise... 
You want to be a weightlifter? Do you just walk up to a set of 400-pound weights and say, I'm going to do it today? Not without some training, right? I'm going to run a marathon. I think I'll try it tomorrow, you know. You need some training or you're going to fail. Fly fishing. Anybody ever try fly fishing? It's pretty challenging. I've taken a few classes and had a little success, but it's a lot of strange-looking fly line, a lot of movements just right, or you get a wind knot, you get it all tangled up in the trees, and it takes some training to do that right, to enjoy it, and to be successful. You might remember a gymnast, um, Carly Patterson, been a few years ago, but I, I loved what they said about her. This young athlete, five feet tall, 99 pounds at the Olympics. You remember, remember Carly Patterson? I don't know how many Olympics that was ago, but uh, I, uh, I liked what they wrote about her. She wrote the, the, in a magazine article, they said of her, such toughness in Carly's life is reflected in her mental discipline. While many young gymnasts bristle at the time, bristle at the time demands of competing at the highest level, Patterson has no complaints. Publicly, or according to those closest to her privately about her regimen. She's up at every, every morning at 5.45, has two three-hour sessions at the gym, morning and late afternoon, and attends private school in between. She, she quotes uh, Carly by saying, my coach says if you're not working hard, someone else is somewhere else. <laughs> Though her picture is now on McDonald's bags across the country, Carly says she stays away from fast food and other staples of teen life. She says, my younger sister is totally normal and on the weekend has all of her friends over, orders a large pizza, stays up half the night. But I wouldn't trade places. Pizza's going to be there after all this is over, speaking about the Olympics. Her mom confesses that she felt a tinge of sadness when she picked up Carly one early, picked up early from a school event. But she just told me, it's okay, Mom, I've got bigger goals. So this idea of discipline involves being able to say no. To say no. In verse 7, we have the word refuse. You've got to say no to some things in order to say yes to others. We have to make priorities. In the Proverbs, we have the choice between the foolish and the wise, the good and the evil. Um... Uh, the, the, the path towards righteousness, the path towards destruction, uh, the way of life, the way of death. You can't spend a life pursuing both ways. Jesus said you can't serve God and mammon. Only one can be your master. You can't serve the world and you can't serve God at the same time. There have to be priorities. So denying yourself is not like what some people practice as Lent, where they're going to give up something for 40 days before Easter. Um, I talk to some people when I see the Ash Wednesday thing on their face on occasion. I say, what did, you, what did you give up? They seem okay talking about that. Oh, I gave up broccoli, you know, or I gave up uh, chocolate. Sometimes you hear that, or, you know, gave up something that they really enjoy uh, as a sacrifice to the Lord. Um, and, and other denominations, of course, practice this. But this idea of denial is not about giving up something outside of you. It's about giving up something inside of you. And I think that's the biblical key. Because you can give up something outside of you that you like and still be totally corrupt inside. I'll just find my vices satisfied somewhere else. But the call is to refuse to say no to that which is inside of me. That old man. Look at Ephesians 4.22. Ephesians 4.22. 
this idea of the old man comes into place here, which is the old, the old nature, the flesh. Let's start at verse 21. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation or lifestyle or behavior, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, that's the flesh, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. It's a daily battle. It's something that we never give up. And we will be doing this for the rest of our lives. But by God's grace, we get better at it, just like you get better at fly fishing, you get better at weightlifting, you get better at running marathons, you get better at doing anything you desire to get better at. And I really believe that's true. If you desire to get better at something, you will make it happen. Because you want it. No one else can make you do that. But if you want it, and you want the benefits that may come from being able to do that thing, you're going to make it happen. You'll find the resources for it. You'll find the time for it. You'll find the money for it. You'll find the energy for it if it's something that you truly desire. Even if it's insanely hard, you can make it happen. I believe that. People do that all the time. I was in line on Friday night at the 5K behind an 83-year-old woman who was ahead of me in the faster shoot than I was in. And I thought, I'm going to beat her. (laughs) I have to beat an 83-year-old lady. And uh, but uh, she was a uh, had a wonderful smile. She'd been doing this for many years and was on the Grandma's Marathon um, board of directors and everything, and just ran for fun. She just ran for fun at 83 years old. Looked good and uh, came in with a good time. I thought um, when I was there to watch her come in. But uh, you know, if you want to do something, you can make it happen, and you will make it happen. The key is, do you want it? What do you want? What do you want? If every day you're willing to say no to yourself and yes to Christ, it will become a habit. It will become a habit. Habits are the key to godliness. I really believe that. Did you button your shirt from the top or the bottom this morning when you got dressed? Those of you that had buttons on your shirt. Do you remember? You start from the bottom. Bing starts from the bottom. How many of you think that's really weird? Yeah, that's kind of weird. You know, it's got to be from the top, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. You, know, you don't even probably think about it when you do that, do you? Did you put your left foot into your pants, if you put on pants this morning, or your right foot first? Do you even remember? You probably do the same thing every time. When you brush your teeth, you start on the bottom left and go all the way around and go to the top right and end up on the top left. Do you even know? Try brushing your teeth with your left hand and see how hard it is if you're right-handed. See how strange that is. You need to know where to start. It's really strange. What's the key to all this? Habits. You've been doing these things for so long, you don't even have to think about it. I'm not sure if the word unconsciously is the right word, but you're doing it without thinking. That's a habit. Sociologists tell us if you do something for 21 days in a row, three weeks, generally... If you do it the same way each time, it will become an ingrained habit. Now, you can always break that habit if you don't keep up with it. But if you'll do it for 21 days, it's hard to stop initially. If you want to do something for, and make it a habit, do it for three weeks every day in a row without fail. And sociologists tell us it'll be ingrained. It'll be a habit for you. You want to start doing something healthy? Try doing something for three weeks in a row and see if it works. See if it helps. Do you remember back when you were about 15 or 16 and you got into that, got mom and dad's car and you got in the seat 
and you turn on the ignition and everything was very strange and new to you. Adjusting the mirrors, releasing the parking brake, adjusting the seat. But they didn't have seat belts when many of us started driving, right? <laughs> but now you have to put on the seat belts. Looking behind you, backing up, looking over your shoulder, changing lanes, remembering your, uh, you know, all the rules of the road. There was a lot to learn. That is a very complex human behavior, driving an automobile. People in other countries that don't have automobiles think it's very similar to flying an airplane. But it's not to us, is it? I mean, we can't fly an airplane. But it's a complex social behavior, driving an automobile safely, and now you can do it. You can go out in the dark. You can get in your car in the middle of the night, start everything up, check your mirrors, put on your seatbelt, turn the radio to your favorite station, back out, and be heading down the road 65 miles an hour and talking with your passenger next to you about the game last night without even thinking about it. How in the world did you achieve something so complex to the point where you don't even remember? You ever get somewhere and don't remember even getting there? <laughs> I've done it so many times. Do you remember putting the keys in the ignition? Do you remember moving the seat up or back? Probably did. It's a habit. Godliness should never be something that is mindless, but obeying God and being a godly person should come to us so naturally that it's not even a question of whether I should or shouldn't. It becomes habitual to do the right thing. It becomes habitual to have my time with God, to spend time in prayer, to be able to share my faith when opportunity presents itself. It becomes a habit. But it will only become so if you desire it, if you want it. Why do people become efficient at driving? Because they want to, and they realize they need to. And there are many benefits from doing so. Godliness is not that different. If we want to, and we recognize the biblical need to, it should change the way we live to the point we desire this right now above anything else. I desire to be godly more than I desire a promotion. I desire to be godly more than I desire some special meal later tonight. I desire to be godly more than I desire any other creature comfort. I desire this more than anything else. And when I have that kind of desire and earnest passion to achieve that, nothing will stop us. Paul told Timothy, you exercise yourself rather unto godliness. If an 83-year-old lady can run a 5K in 35 minutes, I think you can become a godly person. And so can I. If we desire it, we make it a regular habit in our life. Spending time with God, praying to Him, seeking His strength and help, He will help you because it's something He wants you to do. And whatever He commands, He always helps us with His power. So you're not alone. If you want it and God wants it, there's nothing stopping you. You'll achieve it. By God's grace, I pray that you'll achieve the character trait of godliness in your life and have a right attitude and thinking process about God and let that change your attitude, your behavior, your words, and your actions in your regular daily life. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would achieve this goal in our lives as we work with you, Father, through the Word, through the power of your Spirit, through the uh, encouragement of the body of Christ, the preaching and teaching of your Word on a regular basis, Lord, as we submit to that and obey your teachings, that you would help us to achieve the goal of being like you, of godly behavior, of a godly attitude, godly actions. 
And Lord, when your church is transformed into a people of God, a truly godly people who have their flesh by your Spirit under control and are fully yielded to your Holy Spirit and to the teachings of your words, Lord, it just seems to me that nothing could be impossible. Nothing could be impossible for your people to achieve united together in godliness. So Lord, I accomplish this here and everyone here tonight at Faith Baptist Church. And in churches like this one who accept your word and believe Christ to be the Son of God and are striving to advance his gospel all over the world, may you bring about godliness among your people. And may you then receive all the glory and honor from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being here tonight, and I pray for you to have a safe trip home. And uh, any announcements before we leave tonight? Anything needs to be announced for this coming week that maybe uh, we didn't mention this morning?